is planting a church on the east side of Baltimore in the Barclay area called Graffiti Church. Uh, he has been with us since about August, roughly, August, September-ish, and uh, will be here until February, I believe. Um, and uh, his, his uh, uh, work is coming along. He is preparing and is praying and seeking to plant seeds, uh, and there are many things to celebrate uh, on the east side right now. So we look forward to partnering with him, uh, over the, continuing to part with him, w- partner with him over the next couple months and uh, into the future. Well, Charlie, please come. If you need a Bible, raise your hand, and one of our ushers will put a Bible into it. Uh, we do encourage you to follow along in the scriptures this morning as Charlie preaches. Thank you, Pastor. Everybody have a great Thanksgiving? Everybody have a good Thanksgiving? Uh, all right, that's good, that's good. I wasn't trying to solicit a response if you really did not, but I won't ask who had a horrible Thanksgiving either. Oh, uh, we had a fantastic holiday, as a matter of fact. It was great for us. We stayed here in Baltimore for the holiday, and our family came to visit with us, so we enjoyed it as well. Um, I would like to express, um, Diane and I would like to express our gratitude and joy for the love and friendship that we are enjoying here at the Garden Church. Uh, I would like to thank you uh, specifically. I'm going to use a bully, bully pulpit for about 30 seconds and, and just thank you for inviting us to be a part of your church family here at the Garden. I continue to say that the Garden is a refreshing church. That's not the kind of word, if you know me, that's not the kind of word that I use. Um, but the Garden is a refreshing church. The love, fellowship, friendship, and willingness to hold one another accountable is very refreshing to me. This is a graceful church family. Um, dedication to spiritual growth and the Word of God is encouraging and special to us. Your friendship and care for us means very much. Uh, as a short-timer here, may I encourage you by saying that this is a healthy church. And if you are not a part of this church family and you are here today, I would say, why not? Uh, it would be easy for Diane and I, and we've discussed this, to feel like misfits uh, in between home church and planting a new church. And we do not feel that way uh, because of the friendship and fellowship you have extended to us. So again, thank you uh, for that fellowship. Uh, <laughs> this is my friend Tony. It is an appropriate transition moving from our season of Thanksgiving to the season of Advent. And I do not think of Christmas time as Advent. That is not, that is not um, an ecclesiastical word that I would use. But I'm excited about it this year. And maybe I'm just looking for something new to be excited about for Christmas. Uh, but how many of you have Advent traditions in your home or in your family? It's okay, you can participate a little bit. Yes, we do. How many of you have Christmas, Advent traditions in your home or family? Um, that's exciting to me. I do. Diane and I have fond memories of Advent traditions, um, both at church and in our home. In Diane's family, there was an Advent calendar that her mother created. It's a beautiful thing. And Diane would put it up on the kitchen wall every year, just low enough where the kids could reach it. And each day of the month, one of them would pick out one of the Advent ornaments and put it on, stick it to the calendar 
for that day, and it built the sense of anticipation leading up to Christmas. And I think of Advent as new beginnings, and I think of this time between Thanksgiving and Christmas as this time when excitement should be building from hearts filled with thanksgiving for who God is and for how he has blessed us to, um, to, to the anticipation of the birth of Jesus Christ. So I look forward to that. And maybe you grew up in a church tradition where you had um, an Advent wreath in church, and it was stationed somewhere in the front, and there would be the wreath with the four candles and the fifth candle in the center. And as a church family, you would anticipate the time leading up to Advent, remembering different aspects of the birth of Christ and Christmas. Uh, we had that uh, Advent tradition in our church as well. So Advent, a season of new beginnings, sometime between the 5th and 6th centuries, the church began to celebrate these four weeks leading up to Christmas. It was instituted, and I love this, uh, I, I checked this out because I'm fairly, fairly ignorant of some things that you may be very aware of, but it was supposed to be a time of preparation and repentance looking forward to the birth of the Savior. It was to be a time of watching and waiting for something greater. I love that part. Um, even looking forward to, as we are able to look back and look forward, looking forward to the second coming of Christ as well as celebrating the birth of Christ. So over the next four weeks, we will journey together through the Advent series titled Jesus the God-Man. The Bible teaches us that Jesus is fully God and fully man. He is one person, capital P, fully possessing two natures. God begins to reveal his plan to us all the way back in the book of Genesis chapter 3 when Adam and Eve have sinned in the garden. God is pronouncing the curse on Satan and he says, you shall bruise his heel and he will crush your head. Preparations were already being made for our salvation several thousand years in advance. God was preparing. What was God preparing and why? Why is the humanity, the incarnation of Christ, so important to us? What is righteousness and how is Jesus our righteousness? Let's pray together. Father, I, I thank you for these few brief moments in your word this morning. God, I pray that through your Holy Spirit, Lord, um, you will illuminate your word. God, I pray that your word will become very real and practical, convicting us, encouraging us, teaching us, and making us more like you. Father, that is our goal today as we study your word. We will thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. For those of you who would appreciate knowing where we are going, uh, we're going to try to keep it, I will attempt to keep it simple today. In a few moments, we'll spend the majority of our time in Romans chapter 3, familiar passage of scripture maybe for many, uh, and we will look at four things this morning in the Word of God. Certainly, Jesus Christ, our righteousness. Uh, number one, fully human and fully God. Number two, the question regarding righteousness and wrath. Uh, number three, our unrighteousness and God's wrath. And number four, we'll get there, I promise, um, Christ, our righteousness, is where we will go this morning in our brief time together in the Word of God. We like to use the word incarnation. Uh, in the middle of this adapted Latin word, we have the word carne that literally just means flesh. I listened to a podcast this week. Um, I was just scanning through Desiring God uh, on my app. I have moved into the 21st century with my iPhone, 
and um, I love my Desiring God app. Um, and I was listening to a podcast by Russell Moore uh, entitled The Person of Christ, and it was so appropriate uh, as I was preparing to share the Word of God with you this week. He discusses the humanity of Christ, the incarnation of Christ. He refers to Christ as our high priest, our Savior, but also as our brother. And that is interesting to me because I struggle a little bit with that on a personal level. Jesus Christ as my brother because he's God. He's, he's God Almighty, Savior of the world. He's the one to whom I should give worship and honor, but I don't think of him as my brother. Jesus Christ, the man who experienced humanity, is also my brother. Incarnation, simply defined as deity taking on flesh or humanity. And in Luke 1.31, you don't have to turn there. In Luke 1.31, the angel Gabriel tells Mary, And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son and shall name him Jesus. In verse 35, he tells her that the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And for that reason, the Holy Child shall be called the Son of God. Here we have Jesus Christ Listen to this word that was used, and I love it. The human embryo in the womb of Mary. And at the very same time, the holy child, the son of God. In Luke 2, 6, then, the Bible states that while they were on their way to Bethlehem, the days were completed for her to give birth. Jesus Christ, the yet unborn baby. The embryo in the womb, the yet-to-be-born baby, maybe even moving around and kicking a little bit so that his mother was uh, quite uncomfortable. Um, Just two weeks ago, our daughter gave birth to our first grandson, and uh, she was sharing her journey with her, more with her mother than with me, uh, as is appropriate, uh, by the way. Um, But she sent us a video, and we actually could see the baby moving around uh, because her, like, you know, uh, very pregnant belly was moving around. And the wonder of creation was going on there, and and we were just amazed by this. Uh, And I know even here at the Garden Church, new life has has joined us recently. I, I think about just everything physiological that goes on uh, and how the birth of a baby is just uh, an amazing act of creation. So the birth of Christ is announced. For today in the city of David, there has been born for you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. He is the infant, human, baby Jesus, and simultaneously Messiah and Lord. There is one account in the Word of God of Jesus as a teenager, an adolescent growing up, Uh, in the working-class home of his earthly father, Joseph, who was a carpenter. And if any of you have teenagers at home right now, and you are the parent of teenagers, we say, bless your heart. And if you don't know what that means, ask me after the service. Jesus accompanies his parents to Jerusalem, and they lose track of him. But in this account of the life of Jesus, we see Jesus the teenager. In Matthew 4, Jesus fasts for 40 days, and the Bible says afterwards that he was hungry. He is being tempted by Satan, who offers him all of the kingdoms of the world, among other things, and Jesus resists and responds to Satan. Temptation as part of humanity. Jesus experienced real temptation. 
Jesus fell asleep one night. You may uh, remember the account. He fell asleep in the boat one night as a storm rose up. How only Jesus could sleep in a boat during the storm. Um, but Jesus felt fatigue. He was tired. He was human. He experienced the physical limitations of humanity. He chose to. When Jesus arrived in Bethany uh, at one time during his ministry, he saw his friends grieving the death of his friend Lazarus. The Bible says he was troubled in his spirit and deeply moved. Jesus wept. The verse in the Bible all the kids like to memorize so they can say they've memorized the shortest verse in the Bible. <laughs> Jesus experienced sorrow and grief just like you and I do. He experienced the human emotions of grief, compassion, and sadness. The Gospels record several occasions when Jesus shared meals with the disciples and with others. And as Baptists, we say, amen, Jesus ate good food, and several accounts of it in the Bible. I suspect, I suspect that when Jesus cried out in his humanity to God at his crucifixion, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That it was with great emotion that he said this, fully human and fully God. As a matter of fact, as we explore that for one moment further, turn with me, uh, if you will, to Isaiah chapter 53. Isaiah chapter 53, for just a moment, I think for the, the purpose of the next four weeks, I think it would be great, and maybe more for me than you, maybe you have this down already, but for me to consider the humanity of Jesus Christ, that Jesus is well acquainted uh, uh, with the, the physical limitations that we have, with, with the emotional things that you and I go through, and with the spiritual things that we wrestle with. Listen to uh, Isaiah chapter 53. I think for now I will begin in verse 3. The Bible says, He was despised and forsaken. Uh, by the way, as Isaiah hears from God here, several hundred years before Christ is born, and he is being portrayed as the suffering servant, I will, I will interject, and you can correct me if you believe I am wrong, I will say the suffering human servant, because this is what I feel when I read this passage. He was, um, he was despised and forsaken of men. People despised Jesus, and they hated him. He was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and like one from whom men hid their faces. He was despised, it is repeated, and we did not respect or esteem him. Lack of respect. And surely our griefs he himself bore. So not only did Jesus experience grief, but he experienced the grief uh, that you and I were to experience. And our sorrows he carried. Jesus carried our sorrows and our griefs as he went to the cross. Smitten of God and afflicted, but he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Jesus physically experienced being crushed and pierced through for our sorrows and for our sins and for our iniquities. And we get this picture in verse 10, if you look, but the Lord, the Lord, Yahweh, God his Father, was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief if he would render himself as a guilt offering. Simply Isaiah 53 to express to us this morning that the emotional turmoil, the spiritual gut and heart-wrenching spiritual uh, battle that went on that Jesus experienced both as God and in his humanity. 
See, those, the human part is the part that I dismiss sometimes. Oh, it's cool, he's Jesus. Have you ever heard people, you know, you, ever, you would never admit to thinking that, but oh, he's God, it's cool, he's Jesus. Yeah, Jesus, physical pain, no problem, he's Jesus, he's got this. And, and we dismiss that and we move to the good part because this painful part, this sorrowful part, is not the part that we like to spend a lot of time talking about. Um, but back to Romans chapter 3, and we will begin here. Um, so Jesus Christ, we're setting the stage, setting the table for the next four weeks. Jesus Christ, fully God, fully human. In Romans chapter 3, we're going to uh, talk about the question regarding righteousness and wrath. Um, in, p- verse, in, in verse 5, Paul asks a critical question as, as, as he is writing to the uh, church at Rome This church at the time was comprised mostly of Jews who had accepted Christ. So these were church folk who had been raised in the Old Testament tradition, raised up in the Torah and the law. They had accepted Christ, and they were wrestling. We talked about this in Sunday school this morning. Uh, They were wrestling with the very real, very upfront issue of who is Jesus Christ. And Paul is going to take the whole book of Romans and explain this to them. And so in verse... Uh, and as in Pauline fashion, Paul asks two questions, one in verse 3 and one in verse 5. And the one in verse 5 will propel us forward into Romans chapter 3. Uh, but if our righteousness demonstrates, forgive me, but if our unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God, what shall we say? The God who inflicts wrath is not unrighteous, is he? I'm speaking, of course, in human terms. Now, Paul, you'll see that parenthetical statement in several places in the book of Romans. Paul's saying, for your benefit, I'm speaking in human terms. Now, he'll answer the question, short version, in verse 6. And then he'll take the rest of the chapter to explain his answer. He says in verse 6, may it never be, for otherwise, how will God judge the world? So how do we answer this question regarding the righteousness, uh, righteousness and wrath? Romans 3.5 introduces the text with a question. Um, and then he goes on in courtroom fashion to defend his answer in verses 9 through 20. Now, is it fair, and this is the question, is it fair for God to judge our unrighteousness if it is our very unrighteousness that brings God glory? Now, now, this made me scratch my head a little bit. I never, I've studied the book of Romans, and I have, you know, some of those, um, some of those thick pastor books that will put you to sleep at night if you can't sleep. And, and I have never really thought about Paul's question in this light. So maybe you'll work this out with me for a few minutes. But um, is our unrighteousness, um, how does our unrighteousness demonstrate God's righteousness? Simply put, is God's wrath and judgment part of his righteousness? Is God's wrath and judgment part of his righteousness? You see, we love to discuss God's love, forgiveness, faith, and salvation. We discuss that a lot, especially in the book of Romans. Um, And we should, and we love that. But I believe we also have to discuss unrighteousness first in order to lay the foundation. It's not popular in a lot of churches in America. We never talk about sin. We don't talk about unrighteousness. God's wrath and God's justice just are not important topics. They're fearful topics for a lot of churches, and we're going to dive right into the middle of it. Um, Certainly, you see, uh, 
I believe we must discuss unrighteousness first. It's also part of the overarching theme of the entire book of Romans. If you turn back one page with me, and this is how the Word of God works, and I love this. In Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, this will be very familiar to you. It addresses an overarching theme, an umbrella, if you will, in the book of Romans. Listen to what it says. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, familiar verse, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. Now, Paul, we're pulling back the curtain on our question here just a little bit before we move on. Now, we would stop most of the time here, but look at verse 18. I would choose to read verse 18 along with 16 and 17. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all uh, ungodliness and unrighteousness of man who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. So before we talk about the righteousness of God, we have to talk about the unrighteousness of man. Because he says here in verse 18, and he goes on to build his case in chapter 1, moving through, uh, moving through chapter 2. So the wrath of God is revealed, and it is directly related to the righteousness of God. Um, how is that so, and what in the world does this have to do with Christmas? Oh, here we are. We're talking about, uh, we're talking about the wrath of God. <laughs> three weeks prior to Christmas, and you're saying, I'm glad this guy's not going to preach in our church a whole lot. Uh, but, but we have to do this. So let's begin to answer the question of our unrighteousness. If we continued, uh, and I will pick up in verse 9, and you'll be glad we're not going to go line by line through the entire chapter, although I would like to. Um, we didn't bring snicker bars or lunch, uh, so I will not. Paul says then, uh, in verse, uh, verse 9, he says, what then? Are we better off than they? So here we have these Jewish believers who thought they were in a better position than the Gentile believers. See, they thought their religion still counted for something. They thought that obeying the law, they thought that obeying the law was, they were really wrestling with this whole righteousness thing. Is it really Jesus or do we obey the Ten Commandments and our Old Testament laws? And Paul is saying in chapters two and into chapter three that you are no better than the Gentiles. You are no better than the Greeks in this regard, that we are all under sin. From the time of the fall of Adam and Eve, the human race, you and I, some of you I don't even know, I know a couple of things that we all have in common, and one of them is that we are born sinners. We are born separated from God in our unrighteous state. Prior to knowing Christ as our Savior, you and I share the heritage and the sin of Adam and Eve. Lots of people do not believe that nowadays. We wrestle with that sometimes. So Paul says in verse 9, he says, not at all, in answer to that question, for we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. Now here Paul does one of the coolest things in the Word of God. Again, something else that I had not paid much attention to um, prior to really diving into this passage again. Oh, and by the way, if you think you, and we do, we study the Word of God and we love the Word of God, and sometimes you think, oh, Romans 3, 
Oh, Romans 5, and, and these are familiar passages. You know what? God really humbled me this week, and in my personal life, a brief aside here, I won't chase it too far, uh, got on my face in front of God and, and, and just confessed my sins and my shortcomings for not loving the Word of God the way I should as God was revealing truth to me, truth that was already there but new to me. So here is here's what Paul does in verses 9 through 18. He uses six Old Testament references, one of them, um, both of them from the two most quoted Old Testament books in the New Testament. Paul makes five quotes from the book of Psalms and one from the book of Isaiah. You say, well, Charlie, why is that significant? He's talking to a primarily Jewish audience. He is using the Old Testament to convince his newly converted friends that prior to knowing Christ, we are all sinners that we are all separated from God and that we are all unrighteous. Listen to what he says. And I think this is instructive to us, um, and I won't do this now, but this is instructive to us in our country, in the United States of America today, with regard to what's going on in our country. Listen to what Paul says. There is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside together. They have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. And it is interesting, Paul establishes our sinful condition, our unrighteousness, our ungodliness in verses 10 through 12. And then, and then in verses uh, 13 and 14, he uh, uses our mouths and how we sin with our mouths. And then in verses 15 through 18, he uses our actions. So this is interesting. Our unrighteousness, our sinfulness and ungodliness comes out primarily in two ways. So first he says, we're all under sin. We're all, we're all sharing this condition in which right now he's saying there is no hope. There is no hope. And then he says, listen to what he says in verse 13. Their throat is an open grave. With their tongues, they keep deceiving. Their poison, uh, the poison of asps, is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Um, and he stops there. Here, and I love poetry, and I won't do it to you now, but if any of you love biblical poetry, uh, I would love to hang out with you and uh, buy you lunch or a cup of coffee. And talk. I, I love the, the word of God in this genre. Paul uses here the Old Testament references, and he says... He says, um, forgive me, he says, throat, tongue, lips, and mouth. He doesn't miss a thing. And immediately I thought of a verse that I memorized when I was a child. For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The mouth simply reveals the heart condition, and that's why Paul uses this. He says, we're all sinners, and then the words that come out of my mouth, sometimes I speak death. I tell lies. Listen, this is harsh. I speak death. I tell lies. I say poisonous things. What does a snake do when he bites someone? You may die. You may be very sick for a long period of time. For the purpose of this sermon, I didn't do gross research on snakes just to make everyone say, ooh. Just the word snake makes me say, ooh. Um, and yes, I would jump on a chair and scream like a girl if a snake, if a snake came up here right now. But lest I digress, Paul, um, 
our mouth simply reveals, my mouth reveals the condition of my heart. We're all under this umbrella of evil, and then it gets worse. Paul's not done yet. Am I beating you guys down yet? Please, please stay with me for just a couple of minutes. Um, Paul says this next. He says, their feet are swift to shed blood. He says, destruction and misery are in their path. And this path of peace they have not known. And there is no fear of God before their eyes. So we're all under the umbrella of sin. I speak death and and really um, betray the condition of my heart by the words that I say. And then my actions, he speaks of my feet here, but my hands and my feet, after all of this, my hands and my feet, they go towards sin. Not only do they go towards sin, but violent sin. I would hurt you. Uh, I would hurt you uh, if necessary, do violence to you, do physical harm to you. In this unrighteous condition, I am capable, by the way, Charlie Brown, in this unrighteous condition is capable of every single one of these sins. Now, look, I'm not going to go into great detail and name all these horrible sins, nor will I confess all of mine this morning. But, But this is what Paul says. He's painting a horrible picture of our sinful condition primarily to his Jewish friends in this church at Rome, but then he says all of us share this condition. And then this is what he says. Uh, This is what he says. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be closed and all the world may become accountable to God. Because by the works of the law, no flesh shall be justified. That's our word for the day, by the way. Now we're going to begin paying attention to that word. Because it is the same word in the Greek language. It it comes from the same root word in the Greek language as our word for righteousness, unrighteousness, just, justified. um, is the same root word in the Greek language. So Paul is really communicating a very simple message, but a very difficult message here. Because by the works of the law, no flesh shall be made right. No flesh shall be justified in his sight, for through the law comes the knowledge of sin. So what does the law do? The same thing that the laws do in the United States, similar to what the laws do in the United States of America. When I was in a hurry to drive to Winston-Salem, North Carolina last weekend for a missions conference, there were places the posted speed limit in the state of Virginia said 60 miles per hour. Um, that is a law in that road in the state of Virginia. And I looked down on my speedometer on my little sporty rental car. It wasn't even my car. And let's just say that um, I was exceeding the speed limit significantly. I broke the law in the state of Virginia. I'm not making, now we make light of this and use it as examples, but I sinned. I broke the law in the state of Virginia because I was in a hurry to do something righteous. I excused myself. Um, or maybe I excused myself. I felt guilty about it and confessed it later on. Um, but so what does the law do? And what did the law do in the Old Testament? It simply reveals our sinfulness to us. And this is all Paul is saying. But he goes into great detail establishing our unrighteousness. Um, but then in verse 21 is the good part. I'm going to read verses 21 through 26. I think I need to do that straight through and then continue. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe. 
For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That most popular verse, Romans 3.23, that we use. And by the way, don't you wish I had just given you that summary verse instead of verses 9 through 20? He says, yeah, that's what you get most of the time is Romans 3.23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. This was to demonstrate his righteousness, because in the forbearance of God, he passed over sins previously committed for the demonstration of his righteousness at the present time, so that he would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Now the answer to our original question is beginning to be answered. What is the righteousness of God and how is the righteousness of God made available to me? And by the way, um, and by the way, uh, and may, again, um, confessing maybe I'm the, the slow guy here, but if you look back to verse five where we began, it says, but if our unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God, now jump back over to what I just read. Um, and in verse 25, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith, this to demonstrate, and really this was, is not even in my Bible, um, to demonstrate his righteousness, because in the forbearance of God, he passed over the sins previously committed. Verse 26, for the demonstration. See, Paul has continued this, the answer to this question from verse 5, all the way over here. And now the righteousness of God is not only being made known, it's being demonstrated to us. So this signifies, um, and the words, but now, uh, I'm always, I've, I've spoken to youth for 20 years and I've been a youth pastor for many years. So I'm tempted to say something smart like this is one of the best buts in the Bible, but I won't say that this morning. Um, but now, but now, and it really is, it, it truly is, because it says that we're taking a turn here. As a matter of fact, when I read uh, what the smart guys said, they said it much more politely than that, but they said a similar thing. This signifies moving from an old era of law and condemnation to the new era of salvation. This is the good news part. This is where it gets good. Um, and here it is, I want to read it to you in short and concise uh, Douglas Moo says, by the way, uh, one of the best commentators in the world on the book of Romans, but Douglas Moo says this, uh, if you'd rather hear from him than me, in a passage that is loaded with key theological terms, the phrase righteousness of God stands out. It occurs four times, while the related verb justify is found twice, and the adjective just, as in God is the one who is just, uh, is found once. So after a section in which the need for this righteousness has been demonstrated in detail, Paul is now prepared to explain how this righteousness of God empowers the gospel to mediate salvation to sinful human beings. That's how the smart guy would say it, but I like the way he said that. The answer to our question is now revealed in verse 22. This is great here. 
Uh, he says, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe. Now, is salvation qualified? Some would say no. But verse 22 here says yes. Who, who, is, um, who is this righteousness of God being made available to? He says it's through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who will believe. It says for all those who believe. Don't let me change the verb tense there. I'll get in trouble. For there is no distinction. So this righteousness of God that is being demonstrated to us is being demonstrated through Jesus Christ. It would go back to Romans 1.16 that we read earlier, which would say the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. So what is the qualification there? And by the way, that word believe, um, that word believe means to have faith. Now, we're going to get to the good part about the righteousness of God. It says it is a gift. You're familiar with, Rome, with uh, Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. For by grace are we saved through faith, not of works. Our salvation is a gift of God so that no one can boast about it. We have every good word with regard to salvation uh, in these five verses, but it is by God's grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. You, most of you are familiar, but we can't take that chance this morning that we are in hearing that we are bought back. We are redeemed through, by Jesus Christ. It is a gift of grace. There is nothing we can do to change our unrighteous state to righteous on our own. But now listen to what he says in verse 25 says, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation. Now, I had never, and again, uh, enlightenment number three for the guy who may be a little bit behind um, in the word of God, this propitiation changes the whole thing for me. It does. Listen, God publicly, have you ever heard this? I've done this to people and they've said this to me. Hey, Charlie, what do you have to put me on display like that for? You know, you say something in church staff meeting that may accidentally highlight something that someone didn't do that they should have done or something they did do that they shouldn't have done. And a worship leader would say to me, man, Charlie, you really put me on display this morning. Um, yeah, I love that phrase. It kind of makes me giggle. But here it is a very serious phrase because God chose to do something. This propitiation here is um, hilasterion. Can You like that word? That's like a big old long word. Jesus Christ is our mercy seat. Now, you went back with me to the um, um, Exodus 25 and 26 when God is instructing the Israelites about how, about how to worship him. And he says, I want you to build this thing called a temple. Originally, they had a temporary, they had a mobile, they had church in a box. The, the Israelites had church in a box. They did. And so, you know, they had the outer court and then the court for women. And then um, they had the holy place. And then four tribes had to sleep on this side, four on this side, this side, this side. I won't, I won't keep going with all of that, but it's like very interesting to me. Um, I went from being a knucklehead to a nerd as I got older. But listen to what the priest had to do. When it was time, when the Day of Atonement came and and they made the blood sacrifice that was supposed to cover the sins of all the Israelites, um, the priest, who after he would purify himself, he would take this blood. And this was a very serious, serious endeavor. He went into the holy place, and then from the holy place into the holy of holies, where there was this really thick curtain, and no one else could go in there but this priest. And he dipped this 
bushy thing called a hyssop in the blood. And he sprinkled it on, this, on the Ark of the Covenant. On the Ark of the Covenant, this is where God put all the cool stuff inside the Ark. And then he put it in the Holy of Holies. And then on the Ark were the cherubim on either side. And then there was this cool seat. I don't know if it would have been big enough for me to sit on, but there was this cool seat there, and it was called the mercy seat. And God told the Israelites, this is where my presence will dwell with you. They were very excited that God Almighty, creator of the universe, chose to make his presence known to them, but it was in the temple, in the holy place, in the holy of holies, on the mercy seat. But they were excited about this. But once a year... The priest would go in, and this blood would be sprinkled on this mercy seat, and it covered their sins. What God is saying here, listen to this, what used to be done in private, what used to be done in private that only the priest could do, God says, I'm doing it publicly now for you. God chose to crush, Isaiah 53, to crush and afflict his own son on our behalf. And God says here, God put Jesus on display for our benefit. What used to be done in secret and only the priest could do, now Jesus Christ has done it publicly in front of the whole world for you and for me. A propitiation. Jesus Christ became our mercy seat. We find mercy and forgiveness of sins for this unrighteous condition and the unrighteous acts in which we live, again, by the mercy of God. Jesus Christ is our mercy seat. In his blood through faith, this was to demonstrate his righteousness because in the forbearance of God, he passed over the sins previously committed. Back then, the Israelites' sins were covered. A little bit of a difference there. Won't go there this morning. Their sins were covered. They had a deal with God. They had a covenant. They had a relationship, but it was different. Hebrews says we have a new covenant. We have a better covenant. That Jesus Christ is our high priest, and he is our brother. But over the sins previously committed, for the demonstration of his righteousness at this present time. So now the demonstration of God's righteousness has become public. And listen to this. So that he would be just, he answers our question. Yes, God is just. God is right. God is righteous. So that he would be just and the justifier. I tried to make up a word righteous fire, righteouser. I tried to make up a word, didn't work. So that he would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Now the verse we read a few minutes ago in 2 Corinthians 5.21 says literally that we, those who have placed their faith and trust in Jesus Christ, those who believe, we have become the righteousness of God because of Jesus Christ. So our question, what is the righteousness of God? Jesus Christ is the righteousness of God. We have been brought into and become part of the righteousness of God Almighty, demonstrated, displayed, and made known to us through Jesus Christ, his son, who was fully man, fully God, and publicly put on display his blood shed on the cross for your sins, and for mine. Is God's, 
is our unrighteousness, is God's need to judge and execute his wrath on the rest of an unbelieving world necessary? Yes. If he is God and if he is just, then his wrath has to be demonstrated someday. So that is the answer to our question, but I would say this. Christ's righteousness is only good news, the gospel in Romans 1.16, Christ's righteousness is only good news so far as it has been imputed into our lives. Another church word, right? The gospel of Jesus Christ is only good news if somehow we are part of it. The ultimate question for us personally, and now I'm going backwards, but the ultimate question for you and for me is personally, am I part of, am I part of the gospel? Do I know Jesus Christ? Is Jesus Christ my Lord and my Savior? So Holy Spirit convicted me of sin. Have I been regenerated? Have I been redeemed by the blood? Do I believe in Christ? because the gospel is only good news so far as you and I are part of it. Now this morning, with regard to our nation and our world, what does this mean? Someday our world will experience the, wrath of, the ultimate wrath of God. And it is sad, and it shouldn't depress us. It should spur us on to share the gospel. It should spur us on to love others. It should spur us on to serve the afflicted and the poor. It should spur us on to seek justice uh, for the afflicted and the oppressed. It should. But if, man, Sunday school this morning, you guys broke my heart. I don't even know. I was sitting on the other side. I don't even know the ladies who prayed this morning. I know the guys who prayed. But this morning, the pastor said it so perfectly. And the four of you who prayed, you broke my heart. Because Monday night, I found myself listening to the radio. I don't have, we don't have cable at the new house. So I've got like tune in radio on my app. Um, and, 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 and I'm sitting there like everyone else in the country, waiting to see what the, what the outcome was going to be of the grand jury um, um, in Ferguson. And I found myself, regardless, even before it was announced, regardless of what it was going to be, my heart was heavy and my heart was hurting. And usually I don't try to address national or international issues in that regard. But I saw folks posting on Facebook and I saw folks posting on Twitter. And, and I know how ignorant I am, so I didn't post anything. Uh, <laughs> praise God. Um, but I heard the announcement, and I just prayed and went to bed. But I couldn't, man. It was like a bad dream. Tuesday morning while I was eating breakfast before I went out of the house, I put it back on. I wanted to hear. I, I, you know, I heard what some of the pastors were saying. I heard what the news media and the political uh, uh, government officials were saying. I heard what the lawyers were saying, and my heart was broken. Because the only thing with regard to our culture and our world. The, let me say this and be, I'll, I'll play it just a little bit safe, not totally. You and I, as believers, who possess the righteousness of God through Jesus Christ, one, we must see the world through this biblical worldview. We must see the world through the lens that God does and through the lens that Jesus does, that there are people who do not know Christ who are hurting, and there are people who do not know Christ who are angry. There are people who do not know Christ who are oppressed and afflicted and do not feel that justice has been their friend. But you and I must address this, and I'm not trying to oversimplify a complicated issue. We have to address it from a biblical worldview. 
we have to say, because of Jesus, I have hope, and because of Jesus, I love you, and because of Jesus, we can make a difference in our culture. There are several more complicated, there are several complicated things that go on, but this issue in our nation must be addressed with the righteousness of God through Jesus Christ. Our nation will continue to struggle, whether we have great public officials or horrible public officials, whether we have great police or horrible police. Um, We will struggle ultimately because of sin. But you and I have to hold out hope to others. And I think if the righteousness of God in this passage in Romans 3 says anything, it says we must be the ones who hold out hope to a lost and dying world. And ultimately, if you're here today, and, and, and you were affected by the discussion and the details of unrighteousness, and you are not certain that, that, you, that the blood of Jesus Christ has been applied to your life and that you have been born again, that you are um, a believer who has been redeemed and accepted the grace and mercy of God, I beg of you during our time of reflection and prayer and after the service that you will speak to Pastor Joel, that you will speak to one of the church leaders. We would love to begin to have that discussion with you. And let me pray, and then I know the pastor's gonna come and lead us um, in our time of communion and closing. Father God, this morning we thank you for the truth of your word. Father, we thank you for the righteousness that comes only through Jesus Christ. God, we thank you for this church, for this church family, Father, for what you are doing in the hearts and lives of believers in the city of Baltimore. Father, every day I hear about these men and women who are affecting the kingdom for good. Father, your kingdom here on earth. Father, as we consider this holiday season, this Advent, Lord God, this time of new beginnings, may one who does not know you confess his or her sins, Father God, and enter into your righteousness through Jesus Christ. And Father, may we also be the ones who hold out hope to a world and a culture, Lord, that needs to see you working through us. Father, I thank you for the truth of your word. I thank you for the garden church, Lord. Have your way in the rest of this worship. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.